Jesus' final words from the cross, which is not our final message in this series. Oh no! Next week we got one more. And Henry will deliver it. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 44. If you have a Bible, if you don't, it's right in front of you. Or you can look on the screen. That works. Luke says, And now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. Forty-eight years ago, CBS broadcast a new program, a new um, sitcom. In fact, in the opinion of most people that study television, they will say that this was the first introduction of reality television. It was a show called All in the Family. And if you're not old enough to remember it, you can catch it on uh, reruns. It was landmark. It went for nine years. And there are more shows that, have, that were spawned from that show than any other show in history. In fact, it was so influential that last month in May, Jimmy Fallon teamed up with ABC and they did a 90-minute special on All in the Family. Woody Harrelson starred in it, Wanda Sykes, and then four Oscar-winning actors. Now, if you don't know much about it, or if you do, I'll remind you, there was a lead character. His name was Archie. He was described as a loudmouthed, poorly educated bigot who believed every possible stereotype he had ever heard. His wife, Edith, was different from him. She was sweet and she was loving, but she was not the sharpest tool in the shed. They had a daughter by the name of Gloria who was married to a man by the name of Mike who was a graduate student, unemployed. He was Polish. And Mike's name, according to Archie, was Meathead. And so in the first couple of years, there's this great scene where Archie and Mike are sitting in the living room, Archie in his chair. They're watching the console television, CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And a story comes on about a heart transplant that's just taken place in New York City. And Mike says to Archie, hey Archie, what do you think of that? And Archie says, in all of the sensitivity that he can muster, listen to me, meathead. When you go, you, when you gotta go, you gotta go. And when you gotta go, you gotta go because he wants you. And he doesn't want any quack doctor putting a new heart in there and throwing him off his schedule. Because when you get there, you're gonna have to answer to him why you're late. Now, if anyone was not late, it was Jesus. All through three years of ministry, it seemed as though every moment of every day, everything recorded in the Gospels indicates that Jesus knows what time it is. And here on the cross, He's been on the cross at least six hours, and in these six hours, He's spoken six times. And as we've said repeatedly throughout this series, Every one of Jesus' statements addresses a deep-seated, deep 
personal need that is in your life and mine. In fact, you could argue that every significant need that we have is addressed by Jesus on the cross. For instance, He begins, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is there any greater, deeper need that you and I have than forgiveness? I mean, we know from sociology and from psychology that a lack of forgiveness eats us alive. When we don't forgive, we're damaged. When we're not forgiven, we're devastated. The first word Jesus speaks is a word of forgiveness. That's our deepest, most basic need. Second, He says, today you'll be with Me in paradise. Who's He talking to? He's talking to a criminal who's hanging next to Him. This guy will do nothing except articulate some degree of faith. Lord, when You come into Your kingdom, remember Me. That's all He does. His entire life has been strewn with a violation of God's law and man's law. And yet, Jesus says to him, today you'll be saved. Today you'll be in the garden. Today you'll be in My Father's presence. Today you'll be in paradise. Third, He looks down from the cross and sees His mother and says, woman, behold your son. Son, John, behold your mother. We know the greatest need every one of us has is twofold. To love and be loved and have a sense of worth. Imagine his own mother standing at the foot of the cross while all these disciples have hightailed it. And from that cross, he looks down and he makes sure that she's cared for. Her worth, her need for love is established and so is John's. Fourth, he says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Every one of us needs a knowledge that we've been redeemed. We need to know that someone has paid the penalty for the sin we could never pay ourselves. Jesus does that. He's separated from God. Fifth, He says, I thirst. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Not only does He thirst for communion with His Father, He he he, uh, thirsts for communion with us. And then, that great word, tetelestai, it is finished. Every one of us needs to know we've been accepted by God Almighty. Someone has said the definition of faith itself is the courage to accept being accepted. Every one of us needs that assurance. And we find it in that word, that sixth word, tetelestai. And then finally, He utters the seventh word. And all of you theological experts, all of us, know this. Seven means something in the Bible. Remember the first couple of pages? God created everything in six days. On the seventh day, He rested. And every time He created something on another day, He said it is good. And then He creates man. He says He's very good. And then He rests. Seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of rest. Jesus has been on the cross for at least six hours. For six hours, He's hung there. He's faced the torture of men and of God. And yet, as the sixth hour comes to a close, Luke says the darkness ends at the ninth hour. And not only that, the curtain is torn. 
And it's at this point, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. In other words, Father, I know what time it is. I've finished all the work that You've given me to do. I am now ready, just like You, having completed all the work, to find my rest. Father, I commit my spirit into Your hands. It's a fantastic word. Because every one of us runs into that need for rest more than any need we face. And I'm not just talking about what you get on a CERTA. I'm talking about what you get in your soul and spirit when you rest. I can't tell you the number of people, I mean, all through the week, you may encounter it. Henry and I always do. Bear it as well. People that need a rest in their soul and their spirit. They're troubled. They're labored. They're heavy laden. They need a rest in their very spirit. There's a guy at 8.15. He came and talked to me with tears in his eyes. He said, I don't think you can, I can stay. Unfortunately, I didn't know what to say. I didn't say anything. And he left. What I should have said is stay and listen to this Word because it's a Word for you. There's another woman at 8.15. She spent the last 18 months caring for her dying father. Took him from Pittsburgh down to Orlando. Was with her last night. She talked about all of the different trauma she experienced in that. Watching her dad waste away. And she said, I cried out to Jesus day and night, and I want to tell you the truth. He was there every moment. She said twice. She was once in a chair, once driving somewhere, and she cried out to the Lord, I need you. And she, now this is what she said, and I believe her. She felt a kind of a heaviness on her shoulder, and she reached her hand back without thinking and just put her hand on her shoulder. And she said, I believe the Lord touched me. He gave her the rest she needed. Now, I don't know if these people that we encounter during the week are nuts or if they're just like me, but I can tell you that's the greatest need in my life to experience rest. I'm not talking about sleeping. I'm talking about a rest that I can know in the midst of the most difficult trauma of life. Aren't you glad Luke... Of all the Gospel writers, Luke was the only one to record this last word. It's so powerful. So chock full of meaning. Let's dig in. First of all, notice the conclusion. Verses uh, 44 and 45. It was now the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Do you see what Luke's telling us? It's the end of all the judgment. It's the end of all the punishment. It's the end of all the work Jesus came to do. It's finished. The darkness is lifting. The curtain is torn in two. In 1942, Winston Churchill gave a speech on the radio to the British people. It was after the first victory, and it was a little one, that Britain had over Germany. And in that speech, he uttered a number of lines that are very famous, but let me set it up with what he said. He said, the fighting was intense. It was fierce in the extreme. The Germans were outmatched with every very kind of weapon that they had used to beat down so many others. 
but now they receive back what they themselves meted out to others. This is not the end. It is not, a, it is not even the beginning of the end. It is perhaps the end of the beginning. You know what Luke says? This is not the end of the beginning. It's not the end of the middle. It's the end of the end. For 2,000 years, God's people had been operating under one paradigm, and that was, here's the law, here's what you must do, and since you can't keep it, you deserve to die, but I'll give you a substitute. For 2,000 years, the children of Israel had been sacrificing through an elaborate system of priests, many, many animals, millions of animals. Think of the blood. Think of the flies. Think of the difficulty. And then, we know from the Old Testament, even though that blood covered their sins, it never removed them. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. It covered sin, but it didn't remove it. But what Luke is saying is, now our sin is not only covered by Jesus' blood, it's completely removed. It's the end of the end. Corey Tenboom used to go all over the world, and one of the things she said was, whenever God forgives us in Christ, Jesus' blood not only covers our sin, it removes it. It buries it in the depths of the sea and posts a sign, no fishing. That's exactly what Henry was talking about last week. When we say, I forgive you, but I'll never forget, you haven't forgiven. Think of it. The God of the universe who tells us over 2,000 times in the Old Testament to remember. He's saying there's something you'll never remember, and that's your sin. We talk about rest. We remember it. Other people may remember it, but God remembers it no more. And He says, remember to forget it. Now think of this curtain that rips. Do you know how big it was? 60 feet high and 30 feet across. And it wasn't like the curtains in your house that may be one continuous bit of fabric and then is basted on the inside by a liner. Don't, aren't you impressed that I know something about curtains? I mean, I've seen curtains all over. We used to have a curtain up here. It was about maybe a quarter thick. It was velour. We took it down, put the cross there because of this text. This curtain was made up of 72 squares of fabric that was sewn together, and every square was three and a half inches thick, as thick as a big man's hand. It's a bigger curtain you've ever seen, me too. I've been to the Benedum, I've been to Carnegie Hall. Those curtains are big, but they're not that thick. 72 squares sewn together, that means it's tough. It's tough to tear. What's Luke tell us? As the darkness lifts, the curtain is torn, and another Gospel writer says, from top to bottom. In other words, only God can do that. Now think of the purpose of that curtain. It separated God's presence in the Holy of Holies from the holy place. The holy place was where the priests would go, and they would deposit on the various articles of furniture, blood that was atoning for the sins of the people. But one day a year, one man, the high priest, 
after taking more than several weeks to prepare himself, he would go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and they'd always dress him in a robe with bells on. Every time I hear somebody say, I'll be there with bells on, I think of the priest. You know why he wore bells? Because he might die in there because God's holy. And there were occasions in the history of Israel where the priest didn't come out. And they always had a, a rope tied to his ankle. And if they didn't hear the bells, they waited a minute, they said, hey, he's dead, pull him out. God's that holy. In other words, His whole sanctifying, purifying ritual that He went through for weeks wasn't satisfactory to remove His sin. I was thinking about it this week. Just imagine the priests that were in the temple that day when Jesus was hanging on the cross. And all at once that curtain tears. It's no, it's, I've never read, Josephus doesn't talk about it, but I don't know if anybody talks about it, but I guarantee what happened, those guys ran out of there. That curtain protected them from the very essence of God. Nobody wanted that kind of exposure to God. And yet, what's Luke tell us? It's the conclusion. It's the end of the end. No more sacrificial system needed. No more animals slain. Not only that, when your sin is forgiven, it's not just covered. It's removed and forgotten. There's only one thing left after Jesus dies on the cross that will show the complete sufficiency of what Jesus did on the cross. You know what it is? The temple is destroyed. Not one stone is left on the other. And the whole city of Jerusalem is decimated. Jesus says to His disciples at one point, says a number of things in the same vein, but He says to His disciples at one point, there are some of you standing here who will not see death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And you know where it all starts? It starts on the cross. When Jesus says, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit, He has finished His work and He's now at rest. Second, notice the communion. Look at verse 46. Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father. Now think of what this means. Hours before, He had said, God of Me, or My God. God of Me! God of Me! Why have You forsaken Me? My God! My God! Why have You forsaken Me? And the answer we looked at a few weeks ago, He's in the midst of divine judgment. He's being cursed to hell. God Almighty, the first person of the Trinity, has turned His back on His own Son. He's abandoned Him, but not anymore. He doesn't say, My God, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. He says, My Father, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. He's the only rabbi to ever refer to God as Father. It was scandalous. No rabbi would call God Father, and yet Jesus does. He says, Father, into Your hands I've commit My Spirit. In other words, You're back! We're in communion again. You know, I was in seminary. I learned a little theology, but some of the best stuff I learned was on the bathroom wall. You know, they had graffiti at Princeton. And I'll never forget this one message written in graffiti on a bathroom wall in the library. It said, when life sucks, it's wonderful to know that God's your Father and not simply the ground of all being. 
That's good. When life is tough, it's good to know God's your Father and not simply the ground of all being. You can't see that at get-go. You've got to get to the men's room at Princeton. <laughs> when Jesus shouts, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? It's not, Oh God. It's not God of Me. It's Father, Father, Father. The communion that was lost in the fourth word has been gained by the seventh. Luke's the only Gospel writer to tell us the end of the story. Jesus says it is finished. But before He dies, when that curtain is torn, He says, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. You know what that means? That means if you're in Christ, no matter whether everybody else in your life abandons you and hates you and thinks you're nothing, you are in Christ. That means you're in the hands of God the Father Almighty. And there's nothing that will ever break your communion with Him. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? And then he gives a list. No pain, no pleasure, no deceit, no sin will ever separate us from the love of God. We are in Christ and Christ is in His Father. And what Luke is saying to us is, Know it. Live it. Third, notice the contrast. Look at verse 46 again. Then Jesus calling with a loud voice said, Father, into Your hands. Think of it. For twelve hours He's been in the hands of men. And what have men done to Him? They've cursed Him. They've spit on Him. They've caused Him to bleed. They've crucified Him. And yet notice at the end, He takes Himself out of the hands of men and puts Himself in the hands of His Father. For twelve hours, men have eviscerated His body. But He doesn't stay in their hands. He puts Himself into His Father's hands for all of eternity. And what does the Father do for Him? He exalts Him. They ravage Him. The Father gives Him rest. You know what that means? That means the answer to every one of our problems that produce in us a longing for rest, the answer is who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, I could regale you with stories from this week of people that I've met with electronically or face-to-face who've had that same need for rest. An 83-year-old woman a 40-something-year-old man. And I know exactly what that's like because there's hardly a week goes by that I don't long at some point for some degree of rest. Acceptance. A sense of it is finished in Jesus. It's one of the greatest passages of the Bible. John chapter 10. Jesus talks about being a good shepherd. The good shepherd there. And He says... Some amazing things. He says, My sheep know My voice, and every one of My sheep has been given to Me by the Father, and I hold that sheep in My hands. And then He says this, 
My Father who has given You to Me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch You out of My Father's hand. Do you hear this? Jesus says in the space of four verses, you're in My hands and you'll be in My Father's hands. Now that's better than being in all states' hands. I mean, think of it. You're in the hands of the second person of the Trinity, in the hands of the first person of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit makes sure we remember it. Notice the contrast. There are times in your life and my life when we're in the hands of men and women because we put ourselves there. Emotionally, maybe physically. And we may, in our own judgment, be getting all kinds of abuse. They may be doing us dirt. And yet what Jesus would say is, listen to what I said. Father, into Thy hands I commit My Spirit. If You're in Me, that's exactly where You are. You know, we sing this song, He's got the whole world in His hands. And by that we mean He upholds the entire universe. But there's a greater truth. Those who trust Christ are in His hands. He's not holding the world that way. He's not holding the world redemptively. He's holding you redemptively. And every need that you have, including rest, is found in Jesus Christ in the hands of His Father. Finally, notice the completion. Verse 46, one last time. Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Now that word commit, he uses there, is actually a word that literally means to make a deposit. It was the word they would use to describe taking your most valuable items and putting them in safekeeping. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Somebody once said to me, not once, many times, but they'll say something like, well, what do you, you know, you talk pretty well to people. What do you what do? You do? I mean, what's the secret? How do you approach people? How do you make sure that you don't just engage in small talk? How do you do that? I said, well, I talk to them about their favorite subject. They said, what's that? Them. You are your favorite subject. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm taking my greatest treasure, which is me, and I'm putting it in the hands of my Father, and none of these people can stop me. Now, a lot's been made of the fact that Jesus here is quoting David in Psalm 31. In Psalm 31 it says, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Even Jewish mothers would teach their children, before you go to bed, I want you to pray this, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, we, we say, uh, now I lay me down to sleep. That's weak. I mean, into your hands I commit myself. That's pretty good. But David's prayer is so different than Jesus. David is the son of Jesse, and he's committing his spirit to God Almighty that he knows in part. Jesus is the Son of God, and he's committing his spirit to the God, his Father, who he knows from all eternity. Into your hands. Father, I commit my spirit. It's the same spirit that was conceived in the womb of Mary. It's the same spirit the Bible refers to in the early chapters of Genesis when it said God breathed into the ground and man became a living spirit. It's the same spirit the prophet Zechariah is referring to when he says God formed our spirit. So think of it. 
For more than 12 hours, his body has been the focus of attention. They've whipped it. They've pushed it. They've spit on it. They've cursed it. They've nailed it. They've hung it. And in his last statement from the cross, Jesus says nothing about his body. He's talking about his essence. He's talking about the real him. And he says, Father, I am returning to you the life that you've given to me. Now, the seventh question always, or seventh statement always raises a question for me. The question is this Have I done that lately? Have you done that lately? Have you said to the Father in word or certainly in sentiment of your heart, have you said, Father, into Your hands I give Myself. I place My greatest treasure. I'm Yours. You got Me. I'm not much. You're everything. You asked Me to come. I'm coming. You said come to Me when you were heavy laden and burdened down and I'll give you rest. Okay, I am. Give it to Me. You see, Archie Bunker's right. You don't want to keep God waiting. Not because you'll throw Him off His schedule, but because you'll never know your schedule. You'll never know your time. You'll never know your purpose. You'll never know where your need can be met. You'll be casting about in all the wrong places. You will believe that if you can set up every person and every circumstance of your life just right, everything will be fine. And the Lord will always destroy that plan because He's the only one that can meet our need. You want forgiveness? The only place to really get it is at the cross. That's where you'll be forgiven and all your sin will be forgotten. By God! You want to find salvation and a genuine knowledge of your own worth and acceptance? You find it at the cross. You want to know the depth of your sin? You find it at the cross. You want to know the height and depth and length of God's love for you? You find it at the cross. You want to know that it is all finished and you've got nothing to do to prove yourself to God? You find it at the cross. And if you want your rest, to be able to rest in that, to not be buffeted by all of the people and circumstances of your life, you know where you find it? You find what you need at the cross. If you want peace with God and rest for your soul, you find it at the cross. And that's what Luke's telling us. Luke is saying, when Jesus cries out, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. When He cries that, He's crying that for you. If you're in Christ, you're included. And that fact changes Every life. Every life that believes it. Every life that memorizes it. Every life that goes back to the cross time and time again. Every life will be changed by knowing the import of that last word. Father, into Your hands I commit and put Your name. Because if you're in Christ, it's exactly what He's saying. And that's why this morning, at the end of the time of Jesus on the cross, His last word, 
It's fabulous that we have communion here because it's a perfect living demonstration of what Jesus has done for us.